This is Self Work, and I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. At Self Work, we'll discuss psychological and emotional issues common in today's world and what to do about them. I'm Dr. Margaret, and Self Work is a podcast dedicated to you taking just a few minutes today for your own self work. Hello, and I'm so glad you're here at Self Work today. I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. I'm a clinical psychologist out of Fayetteville, Arkansas. I've been here since 1993. But I started podcasting three years ago because I wanted to extend the walls of my practice to those of you who might already have a relationship with a therapist and be learning and growing, to those of you who've been diagnosed recently with depression or anxiety, or perhaps you're just having relationship problems that you can't seem to solve. And then there's that third group. Those of you who may believe that therapy is about whining, that you really don't think you could ever darken the door of a therapist, but you're just curious enough to listen to one like me. To all of you, or those of you who don't fit these categories, welcome to self-work. This is the third in our series on aspects of depression that perhaps don't get talked about as much as others. Today, we're going to be talking about the marriage of anxiety and depression. Sometimes that can be that both simply exist. But if there's a cycle, a mood comes suddenly and goes suddenly, then you have to wonder when you've got both anxiety and depression present about what's called bipolar 2 disorder. We'll talk about its differences from bipolar 1, which is probably more of what you think of when you hear the term bipolar We'll hear the words of two people who write about their bipolar disorder, what it's really like, Julie Kraft and Jennifer Marshall. And of course, we'll talk about what to do about it in a discussion of how you learn to manage triggers. Our listener email today I thought was fascinating. It's from a Brazilian man whose perfectionism drives him to try the newest self-help techniques out there. (laughs) Maybe I decided we should call it (laughs) self-helpism. He stopped this, but his question and comment are very thought-provoking, and I wanted to share them with you. Thanks to all of you who are sending in questions and comments from my email, AskDrMargaret at DrMargaretRutherford.com, and I invite you all to do so. But let's sit back and talk about bipolar 2 disorder. Today, we're discussing when anxiety is married to depression. We think of classic depression as someone who's apathetic, who has no energy. You turn on the TV for more than five minutes, and you'll see how depression is depicted on your screen. A man not having the energy to take out the dog, or a woman sitting forlornly on her bathroom floor. But depression doesn't always look like this. In fact, anxiety and depression can go hand in hand. It's true that I've never seen anyone who's experiencing troubling anxiety and who's not depressed about how much of the day is spent in, say, obsessive behavior as an OCD or visualizing dreadful and frightening things happening to people they love as in generalized anxiety disorder. So often, as a therapist or a person experiencing these issues, you need to pay attention to both. The anxiety that can feel as if it's taking over your life and the depression that can slowly creep up on you. Today, we're going to talk, however, about one of the ways these two problems can be present in the same person, but they emerge in a cycle. 
what you're aware of is that you'll be not sleeping well, you'll be anxious or agitated or irritable during those times, perhaps feeling overwhelmed by everything on your plate, and not caring too much about the impact you have on those trying to love you, which we'll describe later as hypomanic. But then, somewhat suddenly, you wake up and feel overwhelmed by your own sadness or even paralyzed. What this can be is a recognized form of bipolar disorder called bipolar 2 or a close cousin, cyclothymia. Again, there's a cycle involved, but today we're going to focus mostly on bipolar 2. So what does bipolar 2 disorder look like? As far as your symptoms are concerned, you've had to have had at least one major depressive episode and at least one hypomanic episode to be diagnosed with bipolar 2. You can fly suddenly from one idea to the next, have somewhat of an exaggerated self-confidence, but again, not real grandiosity, just exaggerated self-confidence. You can be talking rapidly without interruption and loudly, and even have a hyperactive kind of energy and very little need for sleep. In fact, people experiencing hypomanic episodes are often quite pleasant to be around. They can often seem like the life of the party. They're making jokes. They take an intense interest in other people and activities, and they infect others with their positive mood. Hypomania often masquerades as happiness or relentless optimism, which if some of you who have read about perfectly hidden depression, this is beginning to sound like that, isn't it? And in the book, I do talk about the distinctions between bipolar II and the syndrome of perfectly hidden depression. So when hypomania is not causing really unhealthy-looking behavior, it often may go unnoticed and therefore remain untreated. This is in contrast to full mania, which by definition causes problems in functioning and requires treatment with medication and possible hospitalization. The vast majority of people with bipolar II experience more depressive episodes than hypomanic symptoms. Depressions can occur soon after hypomania subsides or actually much later. So you can be hypomanic, then feel kind of normal, and then get depressed. Some people are rapid cyclers, where they go very fast between hypomania and depression. And while others have long periods of normal mood in between episodes. So again, this diagnosis is a little harder than some. Your depressed episodes when you have bipolar 2 look very similar to the ones in full bipolar 1, meaning you have depressed mood, loss of pleasure, low energy, feelings of guilt or worthlessness, or even thoughts of suicide. And these symptoms can last weeks, months, rarely years, but can last a day or a week or a month. Bipolar 2 is not considered a milder version of bipolar 1, which it kind of sounds like but you want to think about them as a separate diagnosis. Their similarity lies in the idea that there's a mood cycle. So let's check in on what someone with bipolar 2 disorder actually sounds like. Two of my own patients come to mind. Both were very successful professionally, so their symptoms even worked a bit in their life. One's hypomania looked like excessive and obsessive cleaning, not sleeping, and being a workaholic. She loved those times because she got so much work done, but she had to fight off agitation and anxiety constantly, even though she was being productive. She'd ask herself, is this good enough? And she was constantly afraid. She did things over and over. She was worried that she wasn't going to finish deadlines. Agitation would arise over conflict with a colleague, and she'd ruminate about that. 
There'd be time periods where she'd stay up all hours of the night to get papers written and do this for several days or weeks on end. Then she'd crash and find herself picking lint off her sweaters, completely numb and completely lost. And she'd have very little energy and just hide from the multitude of emails that were awaiting her in her inbox. At first, I thought she had simple obsessive-compulsive disorder. But once I realized there was this huge cycle, I realized it was more. It was bipolar, too. My other patient's hypomania appeared mostly when he was in front of others. He'd talk louder, do things to call apparent attention to himself, tell long jokes, or he'd do secret things in his marriage, flirting a bit too heavily, or looking up old loves on Facebook and sending messages. When he wasn't hypomanic, he worked hard and was genuinely interested in others. But when his energy level began rising, he was compelled to draw attention to himself. His lows he attributed to his father's suicide years before, simply believing that he was frequently triggered by the complications of their relationship. Whenever an anniversary would come around, for example, he would have a depressive episode. My thought was that he had depression with narcissistic traits. That was until he finally went off all his meds, one of which was masking the severity of his depression, and I saw a very clear cycle of bipolar two. He got very hypomanic, and then several days later crashed into one of the worst depressions I'd ever seen him have. He may have been somewhat narcissistic, but the bipolar two was what needed to be addressed so that he could get on appropriate medication. As you may be able to tell from these examples, I find diagnosing this illness a bit more difficult. It's not bipolar 1 where the damage done or the moods are so extreme. It's definitely out of the realm of normal behavior. Passing out Bibles and believing you're a prophet or giving away money you shouldn't or buying things you can't afford. Or on the other end, the depressed end, locking yourself in a dark room and not coming out for days. That mood pattern is evident, and that's bipolar 1. But I went to a seminar several years ago that helped me view bipolar 2 quite differently. Again, not as a more moderate version of bipolar 1, but it was its own entity. I started looking for this mix of agitation, anxiety, sadness, or sense of rejection and drama in both up moods and down moods, which is much more the hallmark of bipolar 2. And what can be helpful? What can you do about it as we talk about all the time? You've got to know your triggers for either the up or the down. What are you feeling or experiencing that you need to pay attention to before it evolves into a complete hypomanic or depressed episode? That's what therapeutic work on bipolar 1 and 2 actually look like. But before we get to triggers, I thought it might be helpful for you to hear the words of two people with bipolar disorder, both whose work I highly recommend. One is Julie Kraft. She's written a book called The Other Side of Me, which is a memoir about her life with bipolar illness. I found this article on SciComm, and you can look at it in its entirety through a link on the show notes. There was an interview with Julie where she said that the diagnosis of bipolar 2 was one of the best days of her life because I finally had an answer and a reason to explain my disturbing behavior. She goes on to say, my husband and children were always the innocent victims of my episodes. It was my train wreck, but they were caught in the wreckage with no escape. The ones I loved the very most always got my worst. 
My close friends weren't immune to my dysfunctional ways either. They often found themselves leaving unreturned phone messages, being pushed away or locked out altogether. And sadly, I didn't have the strength to let them know that my absence and silence wasn't a reflection of my love or lack thereof. I was utterly incapable of looking outside myself or seeing the forest through the trees. Often feelings of unworthiness came from my inability to deal with the mundane, package deliveries, paying bills, school pickups, birthday parties, and even trick-or-treaters at my door. Shame and embarrassment would overwhelm me. Why were such simple things so stressful? Why couldn't I cope? It all sent me spiraling into a state of self-hate. I would become angry, frustrated, and then lash out. My outbursts would manifest themselves as middle-of-the-night getaways and verbal assaults. It was a very dark place to be. I soon wanted to give up on everything and everyone, abandon all my interests, and forget about friendships and family. I wanted to put an end to everything except, thank God, my life. You can hear the tremendous drama and ups and downs and feeling like you expect people to be there for you, even though you're ignoring them or neglecting the relationship or even being verbally assaultive or covertly, as my own patient, disrespectful to the relationship. But Jennifer Marshall tells a bit of her story and what was helpful to her when she began being open about her illness. She had started writing about bipolar disorder, but anonymously, and then suddenly one day she decided to come forward. The results were astounding. Others turned to her rather than rejecting her and saying, wow, this is me. I live this bipolar life myself. She co-founded a grassroots movement called This Is My Brave, which actually I talk about here on the podcast quite a bit. Here's part of Jennifer's story. She says, The biggest lessons I've learned in managing my illness is that I need to commit to my treatment plan and take care of myself to stay well for my family. It was a realization she made after her last hospitalization. Marshall was hospitalized twice in the beginning of her illness and two more times during the years she first had her kids. And she continues, All four times were because I was unmedicated. Once I came to the realization that bipolar disorder is an illness I'll live with for the rest of my life, I pledged my dedication to my treatment plan. In addition to medication, her plan includes getting enough sleep, exercise, and regular visits with her psychiatrist and therapist. So many of you may be saying, well, why wouldn't you want these episodes to stop? What happens to a lot of people who have some form of hypomania or mania is that when they cycle up, They feel as if things are really good, but maybe they've gained weight since they started meds, or maybe the meds are expensive, or maybe they actually miss the energy that used to sweep them up and get them moving, albeit unproductively at times, but it was a high. So they stop the medicine, and eventually depression or another episode will emerge. There was a graduate student that I've worked with several times over the past 10 years, and she had to face her own mania which she used to do very well at school, but eventually would cause her such confusion and agitation that she'd have to drop out, and she dropped out time after time after time. So when she was now on her bipolar medication and she was much more stable, she had to learn to go back to school and study like everybody else did without the high of hypomanic or manic energy. But there's also sometimes people who want their spouses or their partners or people they love 
to stay manic. They count on that manic energy. For example, a local doctor brought in his wife a long time ago now. They had children, actually, in the same school as my child. I had seen her and recognized that she had full-blown bipolar 1, I thought, perhaps bipolar 2. There was definitely a cyclic disorder going on. I was encouraging her to get on medication. She spent way too much money, even for someone who has a spouse who's a doctor. She just spent a lot of money. She would crash and have to go to bed for several days where they would have to hire a nanny. This was like maybe three days out of the month, but it was incredibly difficult for her to live her life. But her husband came in and said, I don't want her on meds. I need her to be this active. I can't afford a nanny full time. And I don't know what she'd be like. And she passively sat there and agreed. It was a very sad case. So I promised I would talk about what you can do about it. Jennifer Marshall talked about just really good self-care. And of course, that's very basic. But traditionally, things that fuel an episode are called triggers. Again, bad self-care can trigger you if you don't get enough sleep, if you're not eating well if you're not in therapy and working on your issues. But there are a lot of triggers in psychological disorders. Just think about it. Seasonal depression is triggered by the days getting shorter with more darkness. Anxiety can be easily triggered by an anniversary of a tragedy or feared loss. Triggers aren't hard to understand, but the triggers in the moods of bipolar 2 can range from ones having to do with self-care with others. What else is a trigger? So triggers are usually linked to your past. Maybe it's seeing or hearing about aggression or violence or neglect of children if you had abuse or neglect in your past. Maybe it's feeling like you have to be on for a certain event or a specific environment can lead you into agitation. It's more than having panic about something. It means that a certain stimulus has the ability to either immediately sap your energy or heighten it, kind of like kryptonite for Superman. As soon as you're around that stimulus, it can instigate an episode of bipolar 2 or 1. And that's what you want to learn. What are my triggers? Think about, for example, the doctor's wife. The pressure she felt both from him and her children caused her to cycle into hypomania. I'd see her at my child's school. Again, (laughs) doing therapy in a small town, you often see people you've seen. And she'd be shouting out good mornings, not looking as if she's even washed her face, smiling a really broad grin and almost catapulting herself over everyone else to say, hi, good morning. It may have looked okay to most, but I knew she was hypomanic. I knew she hadn't slept probably for three or more days. And I would see her other mornings where her behavior would be very different. I bet... After she took her kids to school that morning, she'd be going home and ordering extremely expensive furniture or another closet full of holiday decorations with her husband standing and watching and doing nothing to help. What's really sad about this is that the research shows that left untreated, any form of bipolar disorder can worsen with age as the time between episodes grows shorter and shorter. So you have to look around your life if you question or think that you have something like bipolar 2 or even bipolar 1, one, I would definitely go to a therapist or psychiatrist and say, I think this is what I may have. Let's talk about it. There's some really good medications that help keep moods more stable, and those should be addressed. But then you can also look at 
triggers, your own self-care, as well as those things from the past that if you're exposed to them could instigate an episode of Bipolar 2 or Bipolar 1. There is a bipolar quiz that I found on SciComm that I've included as a link at the end of this episode. Good luck to you or to someone you love who struggles with Bipolar 2. Our listener emailed today as an example of when I may have actually answered a bit too quickly because when I read my response to him, I thought, gosh, I didn't address this or this or this. So I hope he's listening. He's from Brazil. He's a 33-year-old man, dad and husband. He says, I've been listening to your podcast for the past four months and I'm really glad I discovered your show. You were well past your 100th episode And it means it should take a long while for me to run out of episodes to listen to. You see, listening to self-work has become a habit on my ride from home to work and back. I come from a lifelong battle with depression that usually manifests itself in more intense crisis every two or three years. This kind of pattern I can't really understand. I went to a very good therapist from the age of 15 until the age of 25. Honestly, I owe her my life. Not only am I alive because of her help, but my life turned out to be really good thanks to all of the positive changes in my way of thinking that therapy made possible. I miss it so much, but I cannot afford it anymore. Besides thanking you, I would like to suggest a topic related to something I experienced during the last year. I have perfectionistic tendencies, and often this makes me vulnerable to some malpractices disseminated by the self-help industry. Last year, I found myself restricting my sleep, radically changing my eating habits, forcing myself to meditate, and overall just stretching my limits way too far, only because I never felt enough. It took me time and courage to mute all of the self-help voices in social media and tell myself, I'm enough. I'm not sure, but with so many voices out there telling us to do different things and so many best-selling self-help books, I suspect that looking for self-improvement may be a dangerous task depending on where you search for inspiration. I thought this idea was incredible. You can certainly get overwhelmed by all the self-help advice out there. I hope I'm not overwhelming. But I love this idea of carrying self-help way too far, as I said in the intro, sort of self-help-ism. Even his phrase, forcing myself to meditate, is ironic and obviously sabotages the entire process. So I actually wrote to him and said, I'm going to give this some thought, and maybe you can look for it in the lineup soon, and suggested he look at my work on perfectly hidden depression. But what I didn't address was the cycle he actually described. Hello, and thank you again for such a wonderful comment. You stated that you didn't understand the cycle you had of every two or three years getting depressed. What I would think about and journal about, since you don't have the money for therapy right now, is could you have some kind of cyclic disorder? Again, you can have long periods of time between bouts of depression, but the very fact that there does seem to be a cycle is interesting, and perhaps you should consider it. Or you could look at what is happening to trigger those depressions. There could be a thread in what you are experiencing in your life and the fact that you drop into a depressed mood. So perhaps this episode would be more helpful to you than we originally thought. 
but it does almost sound as if a trigger for you could be the newest trend in self-improvement, so that when you hear or read about it, you feel compelled to do it, rather than assessing whether it would actually be helpful to you or fit your lifestyle. Yes, that sounds like perfectionism, but it's also very impulse-driven and sounds as if those habits could then become compulsions. I love that you were able to soothe yourself and remember that you're enough. But again, it might add to the picture of there being something in this pattern that you want to look at as far as a cyclic disorder. I will say, as far as self-help is concerned, I'm as bad as anyone about this. My ears always perk up when I hear the words weight loss or new anti-aging technique. I hate it in some ways. But like so many of us, feeling like something that we do will give us more control can be appealing, although my rational self knows I'm chasing a pipe dream most of the time. In fact, as I've just written my own self-help book, I tried very hard to state quite clearly that healing isn't a destination, it's a process. And I even use the words moving toward instead of moving forward because I wanted to give this sense of a process. Well, thanks for a great question, and I hope my answer is helpful to all of you. Thanks so much for being here today. You know, I was reminded of something that happened in the Facebook closed group just this week. I misread something that someone had posted, and my response was kind of a funny, even a little bit sarcastic, because I thought she was being. Luckily, she messaged me and said, Dr. Margaret, I really didn't like what you had to say. It didn't sound like you, and could we talk about it? And we did. I was so glad she reached out to me, because I had totally misread and misinterpreted the comment. So if ever you're listening to self-work and something I say rubs you the wrong way, give me a shout out. It may be that we disagree, and that can be okay too, of course. But especially if I misread an email or something like that, please let me know. I'm just as human as anybody else, and I make mistakes. You can email me at AskDrMargaret at DrMargaretRutherford.com. You can subscribe over at drmargaretrutherford.com again, and you'll receive a weekly newsletter with my blog post and podcast. That's a really easy way of keeping in touch. That Facebook group I mentioned, you can find at facebook.com slash groups slash self-work. And I'd love to see you there. We have more than 1,200 participants right now, and it's a very active and supportive group. And thanks to all of you for leaving reviews, for telling other people about self-work, That's the best publicity I could possibly have. So thanks for being here. Thanks for inviting others to be here. And know your feedback is important to me. Take very good care. I'm Dr. Margaret, and this has been Self Work.